Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and man, I'm excited for this week's episode because I had the opportunity to catch up with Eugene Cho. Eugene is the founder and lead pastor of Quest Church, which is an urban multicultural, multi-generational church in Seattle, Washington, that is really doing some significant things to positively impact their community. He is also the founder of One Day's Wages, which is a movement seeking to alleviate extreme global poverty. This is very dear to Eugene's heart. In fact, One Day's Wages has raised over $5 million for projects to empower those living in extreme poverty. Eugene speaks and writes extensively on issues of justice, and and he really seeks to help people understand those issues in light of God's kingdom and the work of the Spirit. So on this week's episode, Eugene really clarifies some important elements for pastors who are seeking to positively impact their neighborhoods. So be listening in for things that you can apply to your context in your setting to really make an impact and make a difference in your community. Among many helpful ideas, we discuss the false illusion that can really trip churches up from being truly effective in their communities. Eugene also shares the mistake that he has made when it comes to vision and how you can avoid it in your ministry setting. So be ready to take some notes as you join me in my conversation with Eugene Cho. Eugene, I just want to welcome you to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here with you. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Now, um, I was thinking back, and I remember it's, it's been uh, probably about nine years ago now. Uh, I was serving as a lead pastor of a church in Arizona, and I came across the story of the church you planted, Quest Church. And I shared your story about Quest Church, about Interbay Covenant Church, and, and Q Cafe as well with our leadership team, uh, with our board. And it was, it was very inspiring. It helped us to begin kind of thinking outside of the box and, and really seeking God's unique provision, dreaming of what, what could be. So Eugene, it really is a fascinating story. And although I'm sure that some of our listeners are familiar with it, I know that others are not. And so it being such a good story, could you spend just a little bit of time sharing the amazing ways that God worked through the birth of Quest Church? Sure. Thank you so much for asking that story. Uh, so Quest is 16 years old. Uh, my wife and I planted that church. We were in the suburbs of Seattle for about three years and felt a sense of calling to head into the city uh, to plant an urban, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-generational church that we like to say uh, was committed to the whole gospel, that Jesus saves, but Jesus is also at work trying to redeem our neighborhoods and our cities as well. And uh, so we started that. It wasn't easy, as most church planners are aware of. Uh, it took us about a year to get to about 30 people. And eventually, we ended up renting a church called Inner Bay Covenant Church, which is predominantly an Anglo 65-year-old church in Seattle. And in doing so, they had this warehouse um, that they used to use for youth ministry. I think Young Life used to meet there. And over the years, uh, their ministry had gone through some challenging times. And as a result, they had kind of shut down that warehouse. And so once we started renting out their facility, we had asked if we could perhaps renovate that warehouse. And with permission, we started a nonprofit 
community cafe, music venue, art gallery called the Q Cafe. And that was kind of our way in a post-Christian society uh, seeking to build a relationship with our neighbors. One of our mantras at our church is that you can't love your neighbors if you don't even know your neighbors. And I think that's a challenge for all of us that we all are familiar with in some way. So the Q Cafe was incredibly important for us because it was our attempt to live out our ecclesiology, to live out our faith Monday through Saturday, and certainly on Sunday because we worship in that space. But it was about a year after Q Cafe got started that our landlords, Interbay Covenant Church, which met across the parking lot in their sanctuary, uh, the senior pastor approached me with a crazy idea. He asked, or he shared this idea, what would it look like if Innervate Covenant Church died to itself and gave themselves to Quest Church? And that conversation uh, initiated a three-year conversation between our congregations. And ultimately, actually 10 years ago, uh, they made the decision to die to themselves and give itself to Quest Church. And that's in a nutshell, is that story of how Q Cafe got started and how Innervate Covenant Church joined Quest Church along the way. Wow, that's powerful. And, and to hear that, uh, one of the things that, that uh, is so encouraging, I think, is that oftentimes it seems that we see churches that are really just hanging on, um, you know, really just hanging on to their heritage, their history, their tradition, and they just kind of don't want to let go. I mean, we see that all over the U.S. Um, uh, yeah. for sure. And yet here we see that Interbay, you know, they had this this different vision. They had this idea of, like you said, dying to themselves and opening themselves up so that something exciting could be, you know, kind of rebirthed out of that and through your relationship uh, with one another. Do you know how that, that came about? Yeah. Well, you know, everything sounds and looks better on the internet and on paper. And by that, what I'm saying is that, you know, I don't want to take away or dismiss that this was really painful. There was a lot of tears uh, some arguing, a lot of people resisted initially. And I think no matter what age you are, whether you're young, a millennial, or somebody in their last chapter or season of their lives, one thing that I've learned as a 47-year-old leader is that everyone is resistant to change. Everyone. Mm. I used to think it was just those who are older, and I realized it's just everyone's resistant to change in some way. We want to hold on to things. And I'm speaking about myself as well, about Two years ago, our church underwent another recently, a, a massive change as well. And I realized how difficult and challenging it was for me to help navigate our church through that change. But I, I would just want to say that for Interbay, it was not an easy process, which is the reason why it took three years. But leadership was really, really pivotal. Uh, their senior pastor, uh, his name was Ray Bartell. He was the one that approached me initially with this crazy idea, unsure if that was clear from the Holy Spirit, but in confidence, he and I talked about it, prayed about it as two respected leaders. And when he went back to his leadership team and shared the idea, I'll never forget this, they actually eventually had a vote on the proposition to bring this to their membership. And their leadership team voted nine to one against the merger. Wow. And the one person that voted for it was, was Pastor Ray Bartell. And Pastor Ray Bartell came back to me and shared with me that he had made a pledge to his leadership team that he would never bring this up again. 
Uh, and I thought that was incredible and something that I didn't agree with. I thought, if anything, this was a time to lean in and push harder. But he just shared, and he's now in his 70s, he shared with me that he didn't want to strong arm his leadership team as if to push his own agenda. But lo and behold, about six months later, that same leadership team that voted nine to one against it came back to him and then said, we're now ready to talk about it. Uh, it was so challenging, so painful initially that they just couldn't wrap their minds and heart against it or around it. And so uh, eventually they voted nine to one in favor of this merger. And it reminds me of the importance of Kairos time in leadership, God's timing. That for us as leaders, sometimes in fear, we can kind of be fearful and perhaps not flow with what God is doing. Or sometimes we can be so excited that we're pushing our own agenda that we can be in front of God. And so it reminds me of the importance of Kairos time. Wow, that, that's powerful. And um Encouraging as well, because I, I know that, you know, our listeners, are, there are plenty of pastors, ministry leaders who are probably, you know, working through something in their ministry right now where, that you know, they feel like, you know, God, it looks like God is, you know, opening some doors and then suddenly it feels like, you know, things are being pushed back. And, and I, I'm just curious, during that, that six-month gap, what were you going through as, as a lead pastor of, of this new church and, and, you know, kind of the excitement of, hey, here's this possibility, and then— Ray comes back with this news and says, hey, you know, it's, it's, it's a no-go at this point. You know, I think um, I'm sure I was a little anxious, if I'm honest. Uh, it seems so long ago that it's hard for me to recall all of the emotions. But there were some real challenges at our church. Uh, when we started worshiping in this cafe space of 2,500 square feet, my wife and I, we were one of two married couples at our church, the average age of our congregation was about 23 to 24. We had no children's ministry, uh, but our church started to grow once we began meeting in the Q Cafe. It began to attract a lot of non-Christians, a lot of folks that had left the church, disillusioned by some of their experiences. And so our services began to multiply. We went from one service to two services to three services. Uh, married couples started to come out, children started joining us, uh, folks were getting married. And so it was exciting, but part of the challenge was as much as we loved meeting in the cafe, uh, we really weren't uh, able to accommodate that kind of growth. And so there was some anxiety in the midst of some excitement. And one of the things that I've learned is that it's really tempting when we have what we think is a captivating vision to cling so tightly onto that vision that we begin worshiping or idolizing that vision rather than the giver of that vision. I feel like I've made that mistake numerous times. And I think that was an example where I was so distraught, so discouraged when that nine to one vote came in. And it reminded me that I was clinging on to that vision rather than trusting with open hands, the giver of all good gifts. Um, and again, I, I'm sharing that as a confession that I've made that mistake numerous times. So that was what I was going through during that season. That's good. And I appreciate you, your transparency there. And, and on that same note, what advice would you give to pastors who are who might be going through a, a situation where, again, you know, they're, they're excited about the vision and, and what it looks like is going to, to happen, how things look like they're going to come together. And then 
it doesn't work out that way. And it seems yeah. to be obstacles and roadblocks. You know, what encouragement yeah. would you give them? It's a great question. I have three things that come to my, my mind really quickly. Number one, uh, prayer, I think, really matters. And I know that we as pastors and leaders, we know that to be true. But I've learned that oftentimes it's the simple things, the basic things that we often take for granted. Right. And so I would encourage uh, our leaders and pastors to really devote themselves in prayer and in fasting. The second thing that comes to mind um, is the importance, again, of letting go of our vision. And again, just to reiterate myself, it doesn't mean that that vision is wrong or bad, but just to be very clear that the center of everything that we do is the gospel of Christ, that we be spirit-led and not necessarily vision-driven, agenda-driven. And the last thing, I think this is going to be really interesting, but I think it's worth explaining because I think this is hopefully encouraging for folks. Uh, oftentimes, we as leaders, this is what we do. We're constantly marinating and incubating thoughts and ideas and visions in our head, in our heart. We're talking about it. We're dreaming about it. We're praying about it. And so as a result, it eventually makes sense to us. The disconnect is oftentimes when we share this with our leadership team, those who are part of our decision-making processes, uh, when they hear it, we have to just understand that their initial response oftentimes might be construed as resistance because they're asking questions because they haven't had the privilege or luxury of thinking about it, praying about it, marinating it as we have for months or even for years. And so I've had numerous incidents where I've shared something that I'm so passionate about because it makes sense to me because I thought about it, prayed about it for months, and I'll share it with them and I'll get discouraged because it's not met with the same kind of excitement. But I have to realize that they're doing their job as also leadership team, oftentimes lay leaders, and asking important questions. And I have to walk them along with patience and guidance and love so that we can be on the same page. So in other words, don't be discouraged. Don't throw in the towel. Don't be resistant. Don't point fingers if folks aren't initially excited about it on the same level as you might be. Wow, that's so good. That That's excellent advice. And I know it's uh, advice that you've learned, right? You've experienced that. You've lived that out. And so, so we appreciate that. Let me ask you this. What role does planning play for you in kind of the overarching mission of, of your church? Like, um, and the reason I ask this question is because I'm sure that whenever you started, you know, Quest Church, you probably had some ideas in mind and then things began to happen and God put some pieces together and it, it probably didn't unfold exactly as you thought it might. So what do you do as far as planning with your leadership team and, and just yourself personally as far as, as leading the church? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, oftentimes when I meet with uh, fairly newcomers at our church, uh, one of the most classic common questions I get is, Pastor Eugene, what's your five-year, 10-year plan? And I get the question. You know, I get it. It's a question that I've probably received a uh, uh, hundred thousand times, probably. I mean, it's, it's a common question. Uh, the temptation for me is that I want to answer people's questions with absolute clarity because uh, they have something in mind. They're attracted to leaders. 
that have clarity in their planning, in their strategic planning, if you will. However, again, I, I'm sure there are pastors and leaders that can operate in that fashion, and I think that's great. I'm just not one of those leaders and pastors. I wish I could be, I'm just not. And so rather than being someone who plans around specifics, I often tell folks that rather than giving you a 10-year plan, I can give you a 10-year value plan. And by value, I communicate the values of our church. And in our 16-year history as a church, I've learned that I can't tell folks in our church exactly where we're going to be, but I can tell them with passion, with integrity and transparency that these are the values of our church that God's given to us, guided by the scriptures, led by the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be committed to these values. And I believe and our experience has been that if we're faithful to these values, that although I can't tell you what's going to happen next year or two years from now, God has been faithful in bringing us a bit more clarity as we navigate the uncertainty of our future. And so for us, our values, uh, as we're about the whole gospel, there's five things that really guide uh, the vision of our church, and it's these five values. Number one is the human soul. We believe that every single person matters, that every single person is created in the image of God. We believe that Jesus saves. The second thing is community. We believe that God created us for healthy, flourishing, thriving friendships, relationships, marriages, singlehood, and, all, and so on. We believe in reconciliation, that God has called us into the ministry of reconciliation, which is the reason why we care about engaging the marginalized in our community, the isms of our community, whether it's uh, racism, whether it's sexism, whether it's the disparity of social economics and the list goes on, that we also believe in the importance of justice and compassion, uh, that it's not a tertiary issue, but it's part of the heart of the gospel to embody uh, God's kindness and justice and mercy. And lastly, uh, one of our values is that we are a church committed to global presence, uh, that certainly we care about missions but in our fast-changing world, we want to be mindful of aspects of development, of what it means to care about the flourishing of the factory worker in Sri Lanka, as we also care about our own flourishing as well. We want to care about what it means to uh, live in relationships where we're not just perpetuating sometimes dangerous colonialist mindsets that sometimes we in the Western church have been guilty of. Mm -hmm. So those are all very complex, but I think also very important. These are the values that guide the vision of our church. Uh, that, that's great. So these five values, so then they serve as a, a filter of sorts whenever you and your leadership team are, are praying and seeking direction and decisions that need to be made? That's right. That's right. Uh, they're filters that help us you know, I think one of the most dangerous things uh, for leaders, individuals, churches, is that uh, we can end up doing too much. And and by that, you know, it sounds so unambitious in many ways. But I think, you know, we have to realize we're not saviors or messiahs. We can't do everything. Right. I often tell our church, you know, we're not the only church in Seattle, praise God. Mm -hmm. We're one church seeking to be faithful. And so even though we might want to do everything, might be tempted to do everything, 
that's really a false illusion in our culture that we can do everything. So we have to be wise and discerning about what it is that we can do. I often tell uh, younger leaders and pastors that I have the privilege of mentoring. The person who tries to do everything will do nothing well. Uh, and so we have to prayerfully discern what are the few things as a church committed to the whole gospel that in this season of our church that God is calling us to go deep into. And so that's the reason why those values are really, really influential for us. Excellent. Now, uh, can you give us some stories about how some of these values and some of the decisions that you've made at Quest, you know, within your community, what are some, some of the stories that have come out of, of saying, hey, we're, we're not going to be everything. This is what God has given us. We're going to focus on this. And now this is how it has manifested itself there in Seattle. Sure. I mean, I think a couple come to mind. Um, I think the Q Cafe is an example of that, you know, of what it means to uh, be about community. Listen, every church, every pastor wants to have relationship, friendship, and influence with their neighbors and their neighborhood. But I think we can all acknowledge we're living in not just challenging times, but we're living in fast changing times. And I think that lends itself to the complexities and the challenges. I mean, I find myself looking at the toolbox that I have as a pastor and leader and realizing, wow, some of these tools seem a little obsolete or I need to keep retooling my toolbox. And I was just back at uh, my, the seminary that I went to school with and I realized that 25 years later, while I'm grateful for my theological education, that many of the tools that I learned back then really aren't uh, relevant uh, uh, during my context and our fast-changing times. So the Q Cafe, I think, is an example of us saying, you know, we want to be a good neighbor, but how do we do that in a fast-changing post-Christian culture and society where people have no interest in coming to a church? And I think part of what we learned during that time is that we needed to relinquish the obsession that sometimes we in the Western church have, where our only metric of win is getting people inside our doors on a Sunday morning. That's, for many of us, whether we articulated that or not, was the winning metric. And so as a result, in a fast-changing post-Christian society, that's not going to happen. It's just not, I don't care how nice your signs are, what kind of coffee you're advertising or donuts that you're advertising. It's how we embody our faith, how we uh, really have this theology of neighboring, this art of neighboring Monday through Saturday, where our agenda in itself is to be a good neighbor. Uh, we think that is a very fascinating and scandalous vision in itself. And so that's an ex one story of how we did that. And we did that for about 13 years uh, before, sadly, we had to close down the Q Cafe about two years ago because we had to move to a larger church facility that we could maybe talk about later in the interview. But during that 13 years, I mean, we saw and witnessed some amazing things because we saw students come in, senior citizens come in, local neighborhood workers come in. Uh, we taught community classes there. We had a music venue there where lots of local artists came in and played. 
uh, we had uh, art gallery spaces. The local Seattle council had meetings there, and the list goes on and on. So it was an incredibly important part for us. The second thing that comes to mind is when we talk about reconciliation, you know, we all know that we live in a world today where there's a lot of tension around issues of human sexuality, around issues of race and reconciliation. And it's important for Christians to embrace the theology and ministry of reconciliation. However, I've come to learn that a lot of people love the idea of reconciliation until they realize it involves truth-telling, confessing, dismantling, asking for forgiveness. It's really challenging and hard. And so if we're asking people to commit themselves to reconciliation and yet not committed to speaking about or to navigate through the incredibly challenging, laborious, and the marathon of justice work, and the asking of forgiveness, the dismantling of some of the systems of racism that exist in our culture, including perhaps we have to be honest about our church culture as well. And so as a church, that's helped navigate some of the really hard conversations about race. We're a church committed to being a multi-ethnic church. It's probably one of the most diverse churches in Seattle. But don't be fooled. It looks nicer on the internet, on paper, Behind the scenes, we've had lots of hard conversations. Much of it has come out through a yearly class. It's a four-week class that we have every single year called Faith and Race. And during these classes over the years, we've talked about issues of white privilege, Asian silence. We've talked about uh, racism in our public school education system in Seattle. These aren't easy conversations, but they've come out of our values that when we say we care about reconciliation, and it's one of the reasons why we've had uh, more and more black and brown folks come and join our church, and we're so grateful for their presence. Uh, one of them challenged me some years ago. You know, you talk about these things. You want to hang pictures of us on the walls of your house, and yet we're not going deeper on the things that are causing some of these brokenness and pain. And that was a real deep, deep challenge about what it means to go deeper as a church family. Excellent. Thank you for those examples. And I'd like to uh, touch probably on both of those kind of major themes. Uh, but let's start with reconciliation. You said that you do a faith and race class, a four-week class. How, how do you deliver that? What does that look like? So we spend one or two Sundays from the pulpit talking about uh, why this matters. Every year as well, around the MLK um, celebration, we also have about three or four of our pastors. Every year we've done this for the past 10 years. It's one of my favorite Sundays is that we read uh, four distinct, unique MLK sermons as well. Again, to kind of center us and root us, if you will. Uh, but we also have a Sunday or two where uh, our pastors or a guest pastor is preaching around the theme of reconciliation. And then uh, after church, uh, during our afternoon time, we invite our congregation to join us for four ongoing, about two hours, a total of about eight to ten hours. And it's not just for adults. Our children's ministry is involved with this. Our youth ministry, our college ministry, they're involved with this as well. So it's a formation. It's a spiritual formation uh, commitment for our entire congregation. 
And it happens to be the largest class uh, that we host because there is a resonance from right. our congregation. And so we probably have about two, three hundred folks, adults that are coming, participating in these classes. That's awesome. That, that is, that's such a practical way to kind of approach it because oftentimes we talk about you know, reconciliation. We talk about the injustices, you know, and we've got some good ideas uh, around it, but practically, how are we addressing it? And, and Eugene, I think that's just a really great practical way. And as you've said, it's become, you know, your largest, you know, attended class. And so obviously, um, you know, it's connecting with people because of, you know, the world in which we live. So, um, so that's, that's awesome. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Now, I want to go back to this idea of neighboring. You mentioned that as well. How are you encouraging your your people, those who attend your church, to engage in neighboring? You know, um, one of the questions that I often challenge them on a Sunday, you know, we have our two morning services in our new space, and I ask people to think about what they'll be doing around this time tomorrow, which is on a Monday morning or a Monday afternoon. And I let them know that what they come up with is where, for many of us, if not all of us, is exactly where God wants us to be. And that we ought to freely take that to heart, that we ought to be mindful and prayerful and thoughtful and intentional about the fact that, you know, as much as uh, there's a level of comfort in our, uh, our residences and our workplaces, there's also something very missional about those very same spaces as well. And so I, I don't necessarily have all the answers for our congregants to answer their questions about the art of neighboring. But what I do and what I can do is communicate to them about the importance, about the intentionality of neighboring. And I think they have to do some of that personal uh uh, cultural exegetical work about what does that mean in my neighborhood, in my context, for the stay-at-home mother, or the stay-at-home dad, for the for the worker at the Amazon or the Microsoft, or the person who's a student at the University of Washington, and it goes on and on. And so for me, I feel like my job as a pastor is to really communicate the importance of the intentionality so that the art, the conversations, the questions that we ask uh, can really be that much more fluid in the life of our congregation. Uh, one of the challenges that we're going through right now is that we have moved into a significantly larger space, which is good and bad. Uh, the bad thing is uh, this building is such a ginormous entity in our neighborhood that the art of neighboring for our church has become that much more challenging. We don't have a Q Cafe anymore, and so we're really wrestling with the things that we're preaching, I've always said, you know, we want to embody the very things that we preach to our congregation as an institution so that there isn't a disconnect. That's the reason why the Q Cafe was such a fantastic uh, idea. It wasn't just a theological conviction. It was in itself a sermon illustration. Uh, and so we're trying to really uh, navigate some of that territory as a congregation ourselves. But so so let's talk a little bit about that. So you've moved into your new facility. How long have you been in the new facility now? Uh, it's about a year and a half. Okay, about a year and a half. And whenever you made that move, now it was it to a different neighborhood? I understand. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, it, I mean, it's a it's a very painful uh, but encouraging story. You know, I'll maybe talk about it just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Let's. Uh, we had been looking for a space for about three years, 
and it just wasn't happening. And so eventually we just had to put it aside and say, you know what, maybe this is where we're supposed to be. We'll have to stay in our space. We were running three services. We had to turn away parents on Sunday morning for children's ministry because we had capped spaces and classrooms. But eventually we just set that aside. And along the way, um, there was a local church that was going through some really challenging, difficult circumstances and situations. And we ended up buying their church. And the thing is this, as a pastor who cares about the larger kingdom, even among theological differences, different tribes, associations, and denominations, whenever you move into another church, you want it to be because that church has outgrown their space and they're moving to a different facility. So never in a million years did I imagine uh, having to purchase uh, a building uh, that went through an incredibly painful, uh, imploding situation. And, uh, you know, again, not to speak too much about it, but we ended up purchasing uh, what used to be the flagship building of Mars Hill Church. And that was just one mile away. So it was a different neighborhood technically, but it was just a mile away. And so it was really uh, in the midst of some painful circumstances. I think I'd like to believe that God was in it. Um, and uh, it allows us to continue uh, important kingdom ministry in our neighborhood and in that neighborhood as well. And how has that been for you moving into that facility as far as, you know, what you just spoke about, you know, coming into a, um, a situation where that church is going through great difficulty, as we know, and, you know, how, how has that transition been? No, let's just say that it hasn't been easy. You know, I think uh, that church was so influential in this city for lots of reasons. I, I meet many people whose lives have been deeply impacted positively for the kingdom. You know, and at the same time, there were folks that were also deeply wounded and challenged as well. But what we've learned is that, you know, in a city like Seattle, Seattle is very challenging. The Northwest is very challenging. And what you'll encounter is that not only is it one of the least attending populations in the country, uh, there's a kind of a strong adversarial spirit just to begin with. And I think with a church like Mars Hill, there was no middle camp. Either you loved Mars Hill or you were really, really, really against it. And so when a, a church moved into that building, we experienced some of that residue. Mm. Uh, and so that was challenging. And, uh, and so uh, I think the, the art of neighboring, the, the presence of what it means to be a good neighbor has become a bit more challenging. But I would say, if anything, uh, it has continued to test our commitment and, and we really care about it. Uh, we're in it for the long haul, you know, and so the first few months, um, I took some time along with our pastors to walk around and meet all of the, the neighbors in our area uh, to introduce ourselves, uh, to just uh, give them our phone numbers to say, if you have ever, any, ever have any questions or any concerns, if our congregants park in your parking spaces, let us know. Uh, simple things like that to, to let them know that we don't just want to be a building. We care about the common good of our neighborhood, and we want them to know that. Amen. That's so good, brother. Man, I, th I thank you so much, Eugene, for, for sharing with us and just uh, being open and transparent, and, and I think it's encouraging and, and inspiring for our listeners. I just want to ask you, is there anything else that maybe we didn't cover that you might say, you know what, I, I'd really like to, to leave this with, with pastors and ministry leaders? Yeah, you know, one thing comes to mind earlier when we began the conversation about, you know, the Interbay merger. 
Um, it was, again, really difficult, particularly for Inner Bay Church. And I have to tell the story to my congregation constantly because there's so much turnover. We have so many newcomers that are coming to our church, and they have no idea about the story of the merger. And it's what facilitated uh, the ability for us to purchase a larger building a mile away to allow God to do more amazing work in our church. But one of the things that I remember sharing with the Interbay congregation when some of them had real struggle and tension about, about this, and I'm sure it sounded a, a lot more pastoral when I told them because it sounds a little harsh, but I want to share this with your listeners because I think I share this with myself and my church constantly. And it's a reminder that local churches uh, will come and go. And I hope that all of our churches have a long, long, long history. But our local churches, uh, there will be tons more that will be planted after this podcast. And there will be tons more that will come to its conclusion. But the kingdom of God will endure forever. And so for us as leaders, I think, yes, we should be committed. We should love the local church. We should have a commitment to the churches that we're leading. But... Our logos, our websites, our branding will come to an end at some point, but the kingdom of God will last forever. And so we have to have a deeper, robust, passionate theology and conviction about the larger kingdom. The greatest church planter, arguably, in my books is the Apostle Paul, uh, the greatest church planter. And if you ask the question, how many of his churches, his branding, his logos, his buildings are still around, the answer is zero. But just imagine uh, the influence, the legacy of the Holy Spirit's work through that particular person. And so I, I'm convicted by that personally because I know there will come a time uh, at some point when Quest Church will have its last service. I hope it would be much longer and later than we can imagine, um, but I do challenge our congregation. Let's have a deeper kingdom vision as we go about the work that God has called us to steward here at our local church. That's that's powerful, Eugene. Thank you so much for that. I think it's a great word to end on. And just uh, quickly, if um, our listeners wanted to connect with you or connect with your church or your ministries, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, you can find us uh, at seattlequest.org for our church. And for whatever reason, if you wanted to engage me on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, I'm at Eugene Cho. And on Instagram, I'm at Pastor Eugene Cho. Awesome, brother. Well, we certainly appreciate you uh, taking your time again to share the story with us. And and uh, I'd love to hear how it's continuing to unfold. And that's one of the beauties of of uh, serving God is that uh, the story is continuing to be written and he invites us to be a part of that. So uh, excited yeah. for you, for your ministry, brother. And, and once again, we just appreciate you sharing with, with our audience. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week, as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful, and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church of Leaders podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they can benefit uh, from these interviews as well. 
And again, we thank you in advance. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.